Hello, and welcome to Relative Pitch, a podcast about music, culture, and society from a young perspective. Our initiative is to bring fresh new ideas to the music field. Here are your hosts, Lauren Green, Anthony Morris, and Michael Brown. So Robin, what are you doing to celebrate Black History Month this month? I am loving on myself, loving on all of my Black friends and family. I'm watching all the Black movies. And I'm really just um, a part of the movement of just celebrating us and sharing, collaborating with as many of my Black um, friends and colleagues and musicians as I can. That's awesome. That's amazing. Has it been uh, weird with just performing in general and like maybe things that were supposed to happen not happening because of COVID or things mostly the same? Yeah, things have been definitely weird. I, the last performance, live performance I had was uh, February of 2020, right? So it's been really an adjustment. Um, I was supposed to start um, the new job that I wanted, the Michigan Opera Theater in this past fall, but that didn't happen. And a lot of things, a lot of performance opportunities that sort of fell through, but um, this time has just really been about, you know, my self-musicianal journey, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. So we know about that journey, but for, you know, our audience who may not uh, be familiar with you yet, why don't you tell us, like, everything about you? Everything about me? Wow. <laughs> I know that's, like, a pretty, like, broad thing, but, you know, just a nice little um, spark notes, I guess, of who okay. you spark notes of my life I can do that I can do that um so yeah born and raised in Atlanta Georgia I uh was I'm one of three children um two older brothers who were musicians percussionists and a trumpet player also um I am the youngest and so yeah I started trombone fourth grade and um switched to trumpet like somewhere between fifth grade sixth grade then then I was like okay got to middle school my band director was like no we need some more female trombone players was like I'll get Beyonce up here cool I did it so trombone was the thing for a long time and then ninth grade um was sort of like the moment when I was like okay I want to be a professional musician and most importantly I wanted to be an orchestral musician um so I um uh, I was introduced to the Talent Development Program, which is an Atlanta Symphony. And so I got to study with the principal trombonist of, principal and second of the Atlanta Symphony. And ever since then, it's just kind of been like cruising my way through this industry. Um, started, did undergrad at New England Conservatory, which also, I'm also finishing my master's there. Halfway through my master's, um, I won the job with the Michigan Opera Theater, second trombone. And so, yeah, I'm here and now I'm back in Atlanta with my parents because of COVID and we're just kind of like making things do what it do um, in the midst of this pandemic. So I have a quick question. Well, two, but let me get to the first one. The first one is, did you have orchestra when you were in high school or were you kind of in band and then you was like, I think I want to do orchestra or did you have both? I, so no, yes and no. Um, I was, so most of my school, I, most of my schooling was um, 
through like Title I schools. So like I, all of my schools are all black, right? And so in all black schools, what's most um, popular is the marching band, right? And so because of that, the orchestras sort of lack, usually lack orchestra pro orchestral programs in, within our schools. Um, my high school maze was a little bit different. We did have an orchestral program, but there wasn't like the sort of symphony, full symphony. So sometimes we would put the band and the orchestra together, but it just literally be like band and the orchestra. Here we go. <laughs> um, so my orchestral experience was sort of was outside of school um, with the talent development program. They sort of pushed us to audition for Atlanta's uh, youth Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra. Sorry, there's so many acronyms. Um, EYSO and things like that. So I was in those groups and that's where I got my orchestral experience. Also during the summer at summer festivals, I went to BTI, Tanglewood Institute, and that's where I got to play in orchestra and stuff like that. So got you. Cause like I have one, I've been a big fan of Benjamin E. Mays for I saw their GMA concert when I was a freshman in college. And oh my gosh. So that was my senior year. Really? You were in that group. Oh my gosh. It was great. Yeah. I saw y'all at Jan Fest where you stood at, I believe you stood in front and played a solo. Yeah, that was I saw that and I was like, I was like, I looked at my trombone player, I was like, that's it. You should <laughs> that's it. Yeah. And then now you're who you are. Yeah. It was awesome just to like all wow. I'm so like this so over family now. We like are. we're family. That performance, mm -hmm. I remember because Michael was with me and I just left and I was like, did you? Did we experience that? Like it was <laughs> such a good performance. And mm -hmm. I was just like, oh my gosh. Now, my second question, you said black movies. What black movies are you watching this month? Oh, okay. So, you know, they're putting um Cinderella on yeah. on Disney Plus, right? So I'm gonna get into that. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see. I so movies and shows, right? Okay. So I watched all of girlfriends i love girlfriends that i watched that too watched it too i watched all of girlfriends all of one-on-one yes <laughs> and then i'm like okay so now we got to get into our black directors producers right so i'm like okay am i going to get into bridgerton yes you are oh my god do it do it are. please please shonda rhymes beautiful <laughs> the way oh my gosh <laughs> Yeah. It's a representation of it all. It's just okay. the diversity within, yeah, the entire series is like crazy. Okay. Uh, so I want to ask you more now about like your, I guess, the professional educational side. And so one of my first questions is so I don't know if you know the term intersectionality, but it kind of refers to the scent, like, um, you know, where people who, experience racism but they may also experience like something along the lines along the lines of like you know being a different minority in the sense of being a female mm -hmm. and so like us being you know black females that is something that we're it's we're born into of being like a double minority right off the bat mm -hmm. so I wanted to ask like have you experienced that like the sense of intersectionality um that you are you know already a minority especially minority within music and then you're also an instrument that can be seen as a male dominant instrument like how have you experienced anything like with you know all those things i guess in your odds yeah i was um it's interesting i think i was just talking to someone about this um there's this sort of like 
thing that you go through internally, uh, well, that I have experienced where it's just like, okay, like what side, like you're saying, like what is being attacked right now? I'm not really sure. Sometimes it's both. Um, But sometimes you have to realize like, oh, it's just because, you know, others are not used to both of these dynamics being presented in front of them. So um, I guess my experience, I can speak for like being a trombone player. Um, Most of my time at NEC, I was the only female trombone player. My first year, there were two others. Um, But the majority of my time, which was five, this is my sixth year, I was the only one. So um, a lot of comments um, in regards to like, um, you know, obviously trombone playing is like always very like, you think of trombone playing, it's like, oh, this is so loud, big, you know, and all things like that. So a lot of comments would sort of be because of that, like, oh, like you're not, it's not loud enough or you're not, you know, holding up to this or like, and I would always wonder like, why am I not getting certain parts on certain bigger pieces? Because maybe they think that this and that. Um, So there are those questions there in my psyche. And then there's some that are actually true where people believe like, well, people actually deliberately not put you on a part because they think that somebody else can play it a little bit bigger or louder than you can. Um, And then there's the other side of like me being in my skin. Um, Like I used to always wonder like, well, why am I always on the contemporary pieces or like Bernstein or like the pieces that have like a little jazz in it or, you know, like why am I always on those pieces? And like, why why am I not on the other ones? So then there's that. So it's just the sort of back and forth between questioning like why these things are happening, but it's also like, it's a journey that I have to, that I think everyone has to go through on their own. And it's like this journey of like fighting the stigmas and the stereotypes and the like little voices that you hear inside of your head and the actual voices that are being said. It's just like a complete journey towards like self-assurance and like knowing your worth and what you can bring to the table and things like that. I, I love that. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the the contemporary and anything jazz <laughs> in it. And she's like, oh, of course. I'll put, like, why, of course? Why, of yes. course? Why can I not be on the Beethoven or the Mozart? And so, I I mean, I absolutely feel uh, you with that. And I'll, I'll let Michael speak. I have a follow-up question later on. So I, right on the back of that, how was it going from, you said you were in Atlanta public school system, right? Mm-hmm. Going from there to the talent development program, all the way up to NEC, which is highly regarded as one of the best, if not the best conservatory of the United States. Mm-hmm. Did you have like any difficulty? How was the transitions from all three of them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was interesting. Mostly it's, it's mindset. You realize a shift in mindset, like in Atlanta public schools, like what do people care about in the, in the arts departments in Atlanta public schools? It's like, okay, we care about marching band. We care about uh, this particular type of performance. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is like at my time at Mays and at Young and the schools I was in, um, people actually started to recognize like, oh, wow, like our band program is really good and we're doing well and you guys are getting recognized. So I think there was a shift in mindset there, but I think overall, like it's the people surrounding you, like what do they care about? What are they investing their time in? So at Mays, it was like, okay, like people are really good. And um, it's just like, 
there are not a lot of people that are interested in like majoring in music. So then there's just like, well, I'm not taking this as seriously as you do, which is completely fine, right? Mm -hmm. But then you go to the talent development program where they're like, this is what you're going to do as a profession. So <laughs> you have a jury, you have your uh, concert write-ups, <laughs> you have, <laughs> you know, you need to be doing this and that. So it's a very serious um, environment. And I can say even in that environment, you lose sort of like the people I, you know, I was missing people at Maze that were just like to playing music because it was fun, right? Yeah. Um, and then you go to NEC where you have, I think a little bit of both. You have like, I mean, obviously everyone is pursuing a performance, you know, degree or composition or whatever. So everyone's really serious, but you have like this mix of like, serious people who care about a lot of different things and their reasoning for their professions and music is different and it's just like a variety of really like outstanding players but also um I guess my mind mindsets that's interesting I did not know yeah. the talent development program was that like intense oh yeah it's it's really intense I mean it's so inspiring and just like amazing to be a part of but it is intense and and they expect a lot because they're investing a lot in you know their students so it, it all makes sense but so throughout your experience you know we've had an episode that we uh, talked about imposter syndrome have you ever experienced and to what extent have you uh, experienced imposter syndrome oh my gosh like all of my life <laughs> um it's so it's so crazy because I think I have like maybe I'm maybe like two years out of the sh the being released from the shackles of imposters <laughs> um but the thing is I think it had a lot to do with um just the environment I was in at NEC and like me being the only one when you're the only one you just like don't know why like things happen and you're like, why is this happening all the time? Like, if it's really amazing, like, I remember when um, I, I re won the, like, international, the solo, solo composition for ITA. And I remember when, that moment when I won it, and I was just like, there's a thought in my head. It was just like, no, nah, this, like, this can't be, you know what I mean? Or just like, so why? Maybe they just this, or maybe that. There are those questions, like, all the time. And... I didn't start like getting rid of those thoughts like in a healthy way, like maybe last year. I can say because um, there's a, a, a there's a space that I reached in my journey where I was like, this is me, this is what I can do. And I'm worthy of this and I'm worthy of that. And, you know, things like that. So. It's, it's a really big problem, and I think it, it's a struggle for um, African-Americans or even just people of color, anybody that looks different from your typical classical musician. It's just something that you kind of carry um, just because you, you realize that a lot of things scream like you're not supposed to be in this, play, in this space mm -hmm. or in this place or this position. Absolutely. Like, I think you're, you're speaking to all of the people of color that is in music because it, it definitely weighs on you. And you talked about the Black psyche. 
and like having these questions in your head and like, am I really supposed to be here? Did I win that because I am black or I'm this, I'm that? So what were the healthy ways that you started to really reassure yourself? And like, Mm -hmm. I belong here. I worked my behind off for this. I deserve this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one community and feed. And and so like, when I say community, I mean, like literally people, the people that sit next to you every day or the people that you, that you are playing for the people that um, you're hanging out with. Um, I started to surround myself with people um, that would reassure me and affirm me and celebrate me. And it's not in like, oh my gosh, Robin, you're so amazing all the time. It's just like, when you're talking about like, I'm going through the same thing that you're going through and also, but you're great. And so if you're great and I'm, we're, do, we're gonna be okay. You know, that type of thing, yeah. right? Um, so I, it was community too. Um, I think I started to look back on my body of work more. So like, instead of like focusing so much on what's what I need to do next and what I haven't done, I started to look back at my, listen to my recordings and read my notes and think about where I was when I was in high school and what I thought I would be and where I thought I would be. And I'm just like, okay, you're doing something right because you're, you're at this place, right? And it's also like, you're doing more than what you thought you would do. So there's that. And I think lastly, um, it, it just comes with um, patience. You know what I mean? I think there's a certain amount of patience that you have to have with yourself um, to let certain thoughts flow through and know that like, that's normal and it's okay. So like, you're like, okay, like these thoughts are happening, but it's not the end. It's like, I'm always trying to complete my thought process. So it's like, why don't I feel like I'm worthy of this? Or why am I feeling, why am I questioning myself? And it's always like, when I complete those thoughts, I'm like, well, I didn't do this or, well, this didn't happen. And it's just like a constant like self-reflection and patience with um, what happens in the nature of being a a musician. Like we are just like, we are, you know, they're like be perfect all the time and perform here. And so it comes with a large amount of um, expectations. Well, I mean, you, we understand like, you know, us being, well, I mean, technically we're all minorities in some way, but me and Anthony specifically being, you know, musicians of color, we can really relate to you in those, you know, in those senses. And I mean, obviously you have been able to overcome a lot of these things with where you are now. And so there's a question that actually me and there's a Michael question and a my question that they kind of tie in together. And Michael, I'm reading yours. Um, he, uh, he's asking how many auditions did you take before landing your current job? And then my question that goes along with it is what was your preparation for, you know, getting a uh, Michigan opera theater and um, what do you think won you the job? Mm-hmm. Um, so first thing I would say like I, this like position, I feel like is the very beginning. Like I'm, when I got the job, I was so focused on like, okay, now, what now? And like, and maybe that's a problem. Like, I don't really just kind of relish in like, okay, this happened, Robin. But I'm always like, so what now? So when I think about um, me getting the the, the job, um, it was sort of like um, 
just me this is a starting point so and i say that to say um because i i took maybe two really just kind of one like true audition before i got this one um and so preparation for me it was like okay this is my second audition um what it wasn't so much like i'm gonna win what do i need to do to get to the next level and so i approach like my excerpts and like as if i'm trying to get the very best instead of like i'm just trying to get to this point like you're talking about like first second you know first round prelims semis finals and stuff like that i'm just like i just want to play this the best that i can instead of like what is it going to take for me to get to the to the to the um finals right i'm thinking sort of ahead so if that makes sense um my preparation involves um and i guess i guess i can attest this to a lot of like my teachers um sort of perspective um my preparation is always looking at looking past the goal you know um because a lot of people, and we talk about this a lot, like when you get a position, like, okay, you got it. So what are you going to do now? And like, are you prepared to sit in that position and, and get your tenure? You know what I mean? So those are, those are the things that I think about. I'm like, cause you know, getting the position is only the, the beginning, <laughs> especially for black people, because we have to sit in the orchestra every day and prove that we have to be there. Right. So I'm just like, what is it going to take for me to feel comfortable in rehearsal every day you know and only it's only gonna take me seeing past the audition seeing past um all those things for me to feel okay you know um i i know i'm probably speaking for all of us and all the black people what you just said right there about you have to prove that you that you belong there. When you said that, that just rung so many bells because like, that's what happens. That's exactly what mm -hmm. happens. And yeah. oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you said that. Like, Jesus, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, I have a question. Did you um, ever like face any blatant racism or prejudice throughout your career um, to get where you are? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um... Okay, so I'll mention maybe like maybe like two instances um, because I think these maybe the most like um, hurtful, I guess, or the most traumatizing. Um, and one of them happened early, early in my career, and I to this day it's the reason why I am the way that I am in rehearsals and stuff like that, and I just hate it. But okay, so I. I had this experience um, at JanFest. And so if you guys know, are familiar with JanFest, you um, audition for, when you get there, you audition for all the bands and then there's like honor band, blah, 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 blah. There's like when Tiffany, Wind Ensemble, et cetera, right? And so I was in um, the Wind Ensemble, which is the smallest group. And um, usually the conductor is like the most, he's the most like, okay, well-known, but he's usually the most aggressive, you know, and scary, right? I don't know what, what's this thing with like, in order for you to be great, you have to be scary. It's like. That is I, the old school love. mentality. Tuscan, yeah. Gilbert was the last, I think modern day one was Alan Gilbert in New York. It's like that old school, like 
I will beat you into submission. Yeah. 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 And that's something that I hate. Like, if there are things that I'm passionate about, it's about changing the culture of classical music and like what it means to be great and why why are these people great and what makes us look up to them and feel like we're so far apart from them, right? So anyway, um, I was in the the top group or whatever, and so I was sitting. I was actually principal, right? So there's little Robin and they're like all these like white men, right? And then all these, everybody in the, like, I think I was the only, I might've been like one or two in the whole band that was black, right? And I was saying principal. And so I had a, so I happened to have a solo and the solo involved like this plunger mute. I can't even, I honestly don't remember the conductor's name, but he was old and white and I know he was scary, right? Um, so um, I had a solo and he like, so I had a solo and the principal trumpet had a solo. We both had the same solo. Um, I thought that I was actually playing it better than he was. Um, however, the conductor's like, stand up. He like stands me up and he's like, play it. And I was just like, so I played it, right? And he's like, like picking at me like, no, no, that's not right. Something, I didn't know what was going on, but he was having me play it over and over and over again. And I'm like sitting here like, man old dude over there isn't playing like he's not he I mean he's playing it but it's not like great you know and so like I'm my um I had a friend to my my right actually and he's a phone player and he's like I like I don't know what's going on Robbie and like this dude is tripping like and that's all I knew I was like okay so dude right here is like okay I don't know why he's doing this and then people were just like that's so weird like coming up he's like that's so weird why he was doing that and it was really humiliating like it was so you know everybody experiences like being called out and having to play something but there's nothing like okay you're in the top group and you having me stand up like I'm some you know what I mean like this is not preschool like you're having me stand up and play this thing okay whatever sure so I just happened to have a, a director um, in the audience and we talked about it. And I, I honestly, I cried. I was just like, this was just like, maybe I suck. I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, it was so humiliating. And he's just like, Robin, all he had to tell you was that your plunger was too far in. And I was like, that's what it was? I was like, and he was just like, yeah, he just, I don't know. He didn't have the knowledge to to tell you that that's what it was or whatever but I just felt like <laughs> you know um so that's one instance um being made an example out of um just for the hell of it you know mm -hmm. um let's see um the thing about Boston is that um, it's different. It's liberal. Yay. Like everybody's blue. Um, you know, she, her, like all these things, you know, everybody's, you know, pretty progressive. Right. So, but that means that the racism is hidden, right? It's not like, <laughs> it's, not gonna be over. <laughs> it's not gonna be over. Like, but the thing is like, when you're in the South, it's like, okay, if somebody thinks something, feels a certain way about you you're gonna hear about it you know at least you know that there's that okay that's a confederate flag cool right in boston the confederate flags are under the dashboard you know what i mean 
um so I think too like I would just like sum up my entire experience a lot of the racism that I um experienced was always a my it was always microaggressions it was always like what did you just what like it was always that type of thing so you'd be I remember um if I'm just speaking of socially um I was with a, a group of like my black friends at NEC and we're just walking the hallway going to class and like <laughs> this teacher she stopped us and she's like Oh, look what we have here. Uh, <laughs> it's like she didn't know what to say. She didn't know what word to use. So she just, I can't, I remember we looked up the word. And it was like, it meant like a group of birds or something. So it was just so weird. But she, it was interesting because she realized like we have this group of Black people and she wanted to call us give us a specific name but she didn't she couldn't use words that you know <laughs> so she just used this random word we're just like huh so it's like it's certain stuff like that um like I I was on the program the NEC program um for a little while you know a little bit of um exploitation here and there you know um like look we have black people at NEC not really though that type of thing um and then like people would be like say like slide comments it's just all you can do is laugh <laughs> yeah yeah the normal life of black musicians this yeah and to your teacher, I really would like to know what she really wanted to say because we to this day we talk about it. We're like, what was trying to come out of her mouth? Right. She she had a word, but yeah. she did not say that. Okay. Right. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when you're a black person, black musician in Boston, everybody assumes you go to Berkeley. They're like, um, I remember having a conversation with somebody like I literally had NEC stickers on my trombone at one time at one point and I was walking through NEC and someone's like asking me about Berkeley and I'm like is it so wild of you that I could be here that you keep and I'm like no I'm actually a student here she's like yeah so like I took this at Berkeley I'm just like and yeah. this have and then it's like when you're at NEC they're like expecting you to play jazz and so I was a jazz I was a, a jazz vocalist for maybe two years I swear to god no so <laughs> you just you just brought up a story which these two know exactly the story that I'm about to say um it was my freshman year at KSU and uh-huh yep Michael's just like I remember and I was uh you know it was a I think it was a rush event for uh, Sigma Alpha Yoda SAI and so there was I think PMA Find Me Alpha guys who were there because you know sister brother organizations and they were just coming around talking to everyone seeing who all the freshmen were so this guy comes up to me and he immediately is like oh like I haven't seen you before like are you in the jazz program why would I be in the why would I be in the jazz program like I just really <laughs> wanted him to know I was like no I'm in top ensemble actually like you know right and it period. was just so like right period and so it was just so mind-blowing to him that like me a black female could be doing anything else besides being in the jazz yeah. program I'm like listen yeah. I love my jazz people they're on a completely different level power to y'all but that's not my thing and like mm -hmm. I should not look 
like I am one specific thing, but that's that's how it is. So I I relate to you so hard in that aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy. It, it's so crazy. It's like you. It, the thought that like you can't imagine someone like this in this space is that's the, honestly could be um, if I had sort of like a theme, like a cloud theme over my head. That's my experience. Like people can't imagine this, so they assume otherwise. And so, hearing your experiences, and I, I've been friends with Lauren for the for all of our undergrad and Anthony, and just knowing. Like, I don't know how y'all feel, but experiencing like next to y'all and hearing your experiences, it just, a stigma has to change. Mm -hmm. And I would pass it off to Anthony because I think he wants to quote something about this stigma and how it has to change. So Anthony. Yeah, so I was reading your bio um, and I love what you said. You said you're an advocate for dismantling of oppressive structures that contribute to the lack of black and brown faces within high art forms. Mm -hmm. And one, a story, uh, there is not enough black people in higher education, higher art whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And as for me, like my, my goal in life is to uh, get my DMA and win band conducting. Do you know that there's only like a handful of black conductors at that level that I can call on and say, how did you do this? Mm -hmm. I mean, two of them we're having on next week or the week before your episode comes out. Yeah, two of them out of, I only probably know, 10 or less that is not like at, of course, at a historically black college that is at a, um, I guess, a predominantly white institution. Mm -hmm. So when you look at that, there's less than 10 that I can name off of. And so I love that you said you're trying to dismantle this oppressive structures. What, what are some of the things that you think everybody can do to really start to change what is going on? and how uh, people look at us as Black musicians, as Black people in higher education. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, wow, that's a, that's a big question. I would say, okay, um, the first thing is to know that we have to get rid of what um, seems to be performative, right? So we have to get rid of like putting Black people on programs. And like their faces is what I mean. You're putting black people, like their faces on programs and banner, um, banners and um, changing our statements and, um, you know, kind of like hiring people just for the, for like three weeks for the sake of this trend of diversity and things like that. So we have to get rid of all those performative things. And I think it, what it takes is for everybody to realize what the root is. Mm -hmm. And the root is that at the end of the day, um, me going to Atlanta public schools or just like me growing up in the community and culture that I grew up in, um, if I wasn't uh, lucky or um, um, God didn't have his hands on me, you know, um, I wouldn't have known anything about classical music and could even consider it something that I want to do, right? So I think um, the root um, lies like really, 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 really early. And it's like within our school systems, like we talk about uh, funding the arts. 
you know, we have to fund like funding the arts in schools, right? Um, because before TDP, um, how like how was I supposed to know about TDP? And I really feel like my you know middle school program was just it was so outstanding that like my director pushed me towards that. But you know everybody doesn't have that story, right? Um, so like. I think that um, in our schools, um, there needs to be a broader range of um, genres and um, access to instruments and access to lessons and um, things of that nature. So like, there's a little bit of like, okay, we need to bring this here, right? But now it's also like, what we're bringing in needs to meet the standards of what is to come. So like, I always say this, I'm like, okay, so um, I don't think right now, I don't think classical music is ready. It can't even, I don't think it's ready for diversity. Mm. Structurally, Mm. it's not ready. Because um, you go into a concert, I can take five of me, me and my black friends, we can go into, into a concert and we will not be looked at the same. We will be treated poorly and everybody in that concert, all the white men and women with their bald heads will look at us like we're crazy and will not welcome us. Right. And we will not feel comfortable. Um, We can be our music can be programmed and we could show up for the premiere of our program, our piece and be the only one there. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm saying like structurally, I don't think classical music is ready. So what is that going to take? That's a good question. I think <laughs> it's a big question. It is. It is a big question, and I think, um, I think it's a it's a cultural shift. It's like we need to change what it mean, what high art means, and what elitism means. Like, mm-hmm. why is Beethoven mm. Beethoven, and why is everything else here? Right? Because mm-hmm. when you balance it out, then it's like okay then you're not asking people, assuming people are playing jazz. You're not assuming that that route um, pathway is um, less. Mm -hmm. And so then if you're not assuming things are less, then everybody gets paid the same and everybody gets, you know, everyone gets hired and you're not sort of like putting things on pedestals, right? Right. So um, that's a, it's, there's a lot of everything I just said, but I hope that some of those things make sense. And um, it's something, it's a question that I honestly ask myself maybe once a week. I'm like, so what is it that we actually need? And what is it actually gonna take? Um, so, yeah. And I think that that's the thing is it's gonna take, a, it's gonna take all of us, every single <laughs> one of us to do it. Um, and I have my last question is what advice would you give black students right now to keep on in music um to stay the course there's there's goodness to come what is some advice to somebody right now mm-hmm. um i recently did a project um with the question of why do you can why you do why do you continue to choose um this career path but most importantly why do you continue to choose classical music because every day is a choice to feel uncomfortable and to feel like you're not supposed to be in a place, right? So um, regardless if it's classical or not, um, I think my advice is 
um, it lies within um, finding um, our true heart and passion um, because you have to realize that music is not, regardless if you're black or not, it's not an easy thing to do. So if you're going into this career path, um, it's important for your for you to de decide what your true is passion is within your heart. And with that passion, what are you going to, like, what do you see yourself doing with the music? Uh, because it's one thing to say, oh, I just want to play in an orchestra one day. But when you're met with all of the adversity and when you're met with um, all the, like the nose and um, you're the only one and you're in a pandemic and it's only you in a room and you got to play Beethoven every day. Then, so do you still want to be in, you know, do you, is that still what you want to, what you want to do? Um, so I think it's just to really find your passion and like, in particular, what you want to do with the music. Um, because I know that being an orchestral musician isn't the, isn't all of me and it isn't the only thing that I, you know, aspire to be and want to be. I, I look at myself as, I like to say that um, a great deal of my career, I would like to include advocacy and also uh, personal connection and um, cultural changes. And it's only orchestral, orchestral um, musicianship is the conduit. It's not all, all that exists, you know? So that's my advice. I love that. I I mean, I, I mean, I'm inspired by you. I can say that like you are an inspiring person and your story, your journey and everything is something I think a lot of people can relate to, first of all, and they will find, you know, comfort and, and also maybe confidence, hopefully mm -hmm. as well. And so we want to end with actually doing a game. And oh, okay. It's called, oh, well, it's going to be, it's called lightning round favorites. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to spit out just a bunch of things. And then, you know, you'll have five seconds or less <laughs> to answer each thing. And some of them are, you know, a little, they may make you think. That's the fun of it, though. Um, okay. A little under pressure. And then at the end, you know, you'll probably say some things and we'll go back to it and be like, wait, what do you mean by this? Or like, yeah. So let's, uh, we'll just jump into it. So uh, first off, favorite composer. my gosh that's <laughs> i told you do i have a oh. oh you can also pass if you want to wait for that one i'm gonna pass on that one that's that's the hard one okay, okay these are gonna get harder as we go uh favorite conductor karina kanakis we're gonna come back to that one favorite trombonist You can also say yourself if you would like to say yourself. <laughs> I'm going to say Wycliffe Gordon. Ooh, Augusta represent. We love to see it. Um, favorite <laughs> ensemble, uh, or yeah, favorite ensemble to perform in. Brass quintet. Ooh, Michael's screaming. <laughs> favorite pop artist. Right now, PJ Morton. 
Um, okay, your go-to coffee order. Um, I don't drink coffee that often, but if I drink coffee, it's just going to be straight, like black. I could never, right. <laughs> A favorite show to binge currently or in general? Hmm. Well, <laughs> well, currently I was, I'm currently I just finished binging Vampire Diaries, but there are a lot of things that I have problems with. So that's very controversial. Are you team Stefan or team Damon or team neither? I'm Steve. I'm team Damon. However, Damon was a Confederate soldier. Can we talk about all of this? I know it's really bad. Like Virginia in general, I was like, this is a bad place to put this show. Although like the slave quarters and the plantations and like, whoo. There are a lot of triggering things in Vampire Diaries, although I love the show. I think there's some things that we need to talk about, like how they treat Bonnie. Like, Oh my gosh, Bonnie was the best character in that series. Like, I will have to, I'm so sorry. They're like, what are y'all talking about? But Bonnie was, (laughs) held the show on her back. She did. She was the reason and the answer to everything. And without Bonnie, they would be, all be dead. So it's just like, that, I mean, uh, okay sorry we'll have to continue talking about that later um <laughs> favorite piece to perform solo or a favorite piece to perform solo solo mm-hmm. uh my favorite solo piece i would have to say um i think martin What about your favorite piece to perform within an ensemble? Within an ensemble, Chike Five. Oh, that that one came quick. (laughs) Yes, like that's like, I I, I know that one. I'm good with that one. Um, Favorite performance experience thus far, of course. Um, Okay, so I have two. One, um, I was fortunate enough to play Lizzo last last year. Oh my God, that was last year. Um, the Grammys. Um, that was um, all black orchestra, black girls ensemble. That like it was incredible. It was inspiring. Like that was such a beautiful thing to see. Honestly, that was so much fun. And then I had like I went to. Um, I went to the Netherlands with um, Boston Phil Youth Orchestra like two, three years ago. Um, and we performed the Concertabelle. And so we played Mahler, uh, Mahler 9 and that- That is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That, that experience, being in that hall and playing that piece um, was really special. Did you get to hear the Concertabelle? No. No, I actually, we didn't. We didn't. That is just amazing. Just Unfortunately. That, I mean, that's a, that's a wild performance. Like, both of those are, like, just the, the spectrum is just, that's ridiculous. Um, and then the last one that kind of goes to the theme of the month. Um, who would you say one of your favorite African-American icons are? Um, it, it's, like, I have it's season. I have seasonal icons, you know, um, people who are showing up for us um, when we need. 
um, specific times. And so right now, and I wouldn't say like icon, but like person who I'm really inspired by right now is Chloe Bailey. Oh, I love that you just said um, that. Because one, like she she's dealing with a lot of controversy with like all her like pictures, their body stuff. But one, I like body positivity, you know, like being a black woman, um, there are a lot of um, expectations when it comes to our bodies and spaces and how we deal with it. And so it's one of the things that I've struggled with, you know, trying to make sure everything, all our hips are hot, are hidden and like all this stuff. So like one, like that's, I'm, I mean, she's embracing it amazingly and she's so incredibly talented and she works, her and her sister, they work their butts off and you can see um how much love and passion is in what they do. And so like, for me, it's not usually like the people that I look, look up to are not always gonna be like in what I do because I'm just so inspired by like people doing the best that they can um, in the best possible way in their individual fields. And I'm just like, wow, like I wanna make somebody feel like that with me playing um, Chike, you know what I mean? Oh my gosh, that, I mean, that's, that's, first of all, yes, Chloe Bailey, everything that's happening, the way she's handling everything with, as grace. Yeah, it's just, it's, it is grace. Like, I mean, so many people would fold under that. And, you know, it's, we know as exactly why she's getting the, um, you know, all the negative uh, things yeah. because of who she is. Because her body real, like, exactly. it's real. Like, and she, are you mad? You know, are you yeah, she's young and she's, gorgeous like yeah, super talented. Talented. Um, Matt, you mad you mad right they're mad and <laughs> I feel like black artists in general will always get thrown under that light any, literally any regardless literally. of if they're an, an actor actress musician whatever they're gonna get thrown we always get that looks always the small end of the stick mm -hmm. and I feel like that is just part of the black culture and mm -hmm. but we rise above it because I bet you, Chloe is like, you know, I'm going to take this negativity and I'm going to make it a good thing. Right. Because and I like her next project. Absolutely. And she's, you know, I, well, one thing I really appreciate is vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And on her live, she was like crying and people were like, oh, you're not weak, sis. You're not weak. But it's like, no, you don't understand. Vulnerability is power. Like, Absolutely. you know, Brene, Brene Brown talks about this all the time. Like, vulnerability is courage like to, for you to be able to show people who you are and not front and not act like this and that like that's that's what I respect mm -hmm. so absolutely I mean thank you the, everything I I just feel so I re I've related to everything that you've said um mm -hmm. while you've been you know in this discussion with us and I thank you for sharing your experiences and knowledge with I know Michael's like I took notes um oh, and <laughs> I'm gonna re-listen to this and write, write everything down but um we really appreciate you being here with us and we're so excited to see all the amazing amazing things that you're gonna do in the future and we're we wish you the best and you know of course you are a friend of Relative Pitch and a friend of ours personally so please keep in touch and everything but um thank you so much and we'll see you or we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I really feel like I'm a part of a family and like, I really appreciate, I got, appreciate you guys giving me this platform, but also just asking all the right questions. Like, this is really cool. Um, so thank you again. Yeah.
So Brandon, tell us how you're celebrating Black History Month this year. Um, well, I can say that um, my quintet, Imani Wins, uh, had an album that was released on February 5th. Um, and that program, I feel really speak, well, we collectively feel really speaks to the times that um, we're living in. Um, and, you know, the group since its inception back in the 90s has always uh, championed works by diverse composers, African-American composers, Latino composers, women composers. Um, and so this has been a thing, a mission, a core mission of the ensemble since the very beginning. So in my mind, um, to put it quite honestly, like we celebrate Black History Month every month, you know, it's just not February. Um, and I think that's the way it should be all around the board. But I think it's very timely that uh, the album was released on February 5th and it has taken up a lot of our um, attention. Uh, interesting enough, it was an album that uh, was recorded in 2019, so August 2019, so a little over a year and a half ago, so well before the pandemic happened. Um, and the pieces uh, themselves were commissioned uh, five years even before that. So, um, you know, these are conversations that we were having long ago in works that um, were in the making a long time ago and music that was recorded well over a year ago. Um, but yeah, it's very awesome that it came out on February 5 and everyone can find it uh, wherever you purchase your music, wherever you stream your music, it's out there. Great program with uh, works by VJ Iyer, fantastic uh, jazz pianist, composer, educator. Um, Rena Ismail and uh, Fred Shevsky. So it's a really, really awesome program. Awesome, wonderful. I know uh, Michael definitely wanted to ask you a little bit about Imani Wins later on. Uh, first of all, can you just give us a background on like, like who you are, where you've come from and like how you kind of got into music? Sure. Uh, I was born in, in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, that's where I grew up. Uh, from the time I was born all the way until I went to college. Um, I picked up the flute in the fifth grade. I mean, it's an interesting story that I tell all the time, but I actually tried to pick it up in the fourth grade and I tried out for the band and I really couldn't make a sound. And so they told me like, I could maybe play another instrument, but I was like, I really want to play the flute. I don't want to play anything else. Um, so they told me to come back next year. And so for like a whole year, I walked to school um, trying to figure out how to make an instrument, uh, make a sound on this instrument without having one, right? Just sort of like the basic concept of what they say, blowing over a soda bottle. And I would just sort of like practice this as I was walking to school every day in the fourth grade. Um, and then fifth grade came around and I tried out again right away. And this time I made a sound right away. So that whole year of like walking to school, trying to practice paid off. Um, and my mother gladly signed the form for me to join the band program because I wasn't interested in sports. And I was, I'm an only child. Um, and so she was sort of like, okay, here's this activity that he's like really interested in and maybe he'll 
stick with it. Like it won't collect, the flute won't conduct, uh, collect dust, like, you know, the video games and the basketballs and the, the baseballs and things like that. Um, so I joined the band and uh, I played, you know, in the band fifth grade, sixth grade. Uh, that's really how I got my start in group classes, group uh, flute classes, band classes. I didn't really have any formal lessons for two years until I had to make a decision about what kind of junior high school I was going to go to. And as we all know, um, there are many different focuses um, in uh, junior high and high school. We have what we have call now STEM, right? So you have the science schools, you have the science technology, the math, uh, computer science, um, schools that may be heavier in sports, right? Big sports schools. Um, but for me, the arts school really stood out as a place where I could, um, you know, really be immersed in music and art every day. Um, and so I auditioned in the sixth grade elementary school and I got in. So I began at the arts high school uh, in seventh grade in Dayton, Ohio. And I stayed there until I went to college. So at the arts high school, public mag magnet school, I had private lessons every week with members of the Philharmonic. Uh, I had chamber music and I played in orchestra uh, pretty much from the time I was, I wanna say 13 all the way to college. So um, it was pretty much like pre-college really. Um, and I did this uh, all the way until uh, I went to conservatory, um, I went to Oberlin, and I did my undergraduate degree there. Uh, I studied abroad in Paris uh, my junior year, uh, the spring semester, came back, uh, finished my degree at Oberlin, uh, then went to Manhattan School of Music, where I got my master's classical flute department there. And uh, yeah, and I stayed in New York and uh, gosh, uh, how many years now? 11 years later. So here I am. <laughs> so that's a bit about background, flute, you know, education stuff. But yeah, and I don't come from a particularly musical family, though my family loves music. I mean, I grew up surrounded by great music. Um, listening to music with my grandmother. Um, the great music in the church growing up was very inspiring as well. Uh, but, you know, what really did it for me was watching the live from Lincoln Center performances with my grandmother on PBS. Um, I remember watching um, uh, James Galway, uh, watching uh, great singers, Jesse Norman, uh, I remember uh, watching the New York Philharmonic um, and just being completely blown, blown away. Um, so despite not coming from a musical family, just um, being surrounded by uh, people who were curious and appreciative of great music and who would uh, support me on my journey. I love that. I love hearing your story and how you were persistent to, I'm going to play the flute. I, I love that. And especially as an educator, because I, with the beginning band and they're like, I want to do this. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna hold you to it. So your story definitely resonates with 
as an educator seeing that. And I have a question for you about throughout your career, have you um, really ever faced any blatant racism or prejudice because you are a black flute player? And I'm pretty sure going, especially in classical music, it is not always um, accepted in a way that we can be able to play all these different instruments. So have you any faced that um, to your face or ever acknowledged that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, for me personally, I feel um, very fortunate that I have been surrounded by people who um, believed in me and saw that uh, I had something to say for, you know, through playing the flute and through music. Uh, from the very, from the really from the very beginning uh, at uh, the arts high school um, and in my youth orchestra, I think you get comfortable being sort of the only one or one of few. Um, you know, I remember in my youth orchestra that was probably eighty people. Um, there might have been like five. Uh, African Americans in in the in the youth orchestra, and I was certainly uh, the only uh, a black flute player. Um, but you know, my teachers were incredibly supportive, um, and other musicians that I would encounter uh, were also really really supportive. Um, so I can't say that there that I particularly uh, faced. Uh, something. I will say that one thing that continued to come up uh, in my training uh, was not necessarily from um, teachers uh, or other musicians, but it was from, it would be from audience members, um, people who would hear me play that um, often would stereotype uh, me as a classical musician as perhaps because I'm black that I, I might know how to play jazz or some kind of uh, other uh, music that's associated with uh, black people. Um, and so I think for me, that was the most frustrating thing when I got out of school is wanting people to take me seriously as a classical player, that this is music that spoke to me, that it's music that I worked very hard um, at learning and understanding from the time I was 12 years old. Um, and that, yeah, that just because I look a certain way doesn't mean that I know how to play a certain kind of music. Um, so, like I said, while I might not have faced any, uh, what I would say, blatant um, discrimination or anything in terms of uh, my education and my professional career, I mean, I feel like I've been very lucky um, that I've had so many great people um, uh, musicians, instrumentalists, uh, conductors, uh, people who have been behind me. So, and I know that that's not always the case. And so I don't take that for granted. I, I know that I feel like it was um, kind of a privilege, you know, but at the same time, I will say that 
I just think the stereotyping that I, because I look a certain way, I must know about a certain thing or I must play a certain uh, repertoire um, it, uh, was frustrating. And I, I, that was something that I had to work on within me is inside of myself, uh, not expecting that that was going to go away, but that over time, um, I would just get comfortable with my responses. So where, where I would typically uh, hesitate or freeze up and didn't know how to answer, I could just like get that 10 second, you know, one liner out where it was like, after I said that there were no more questions <laughs> about what it is that I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate so much, especially with the idea that, oh, you're jazz flutist, right? <clears throat> and it's such a funny question anytime it came up because for me, I was like, why do you think that? It was such a weird thing. I was like, I have, I'm not good at jazz. I tried. And I, even though they said I did a good job, I think they were lying to me. And so <laughs> it was something I appreciate it, but it's not something like, that's not like who I am as a musician. And, you know, I absolutely agree with you. It's, you know, we're so blessed, the ones of us who have like a really supportive system around us, whether it's our instructors, our con like conductors who are around us, other pro like uh, professors within the schools that we study with. Um, it, is a, it is a wonderful privilege to have people who can see you for who you are and not what, you know, is just skin deep. Um, and so I love that. I know Michael had a question kind of regarding more about your um, atmosphere with Ur Oberlin, I believe, and maybe Manhattan as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I was wondering how your time at Oberlin, and especially since you mentioned the one year abroad in Paris, and your time in Manhattan shaped you as a musician and shaped like your career path. Because I know a lot of people go to certain conservatories are like, I want to play orchestra or they go for chamber music or they go for a soloist. So I'm wondering like what your path was through all four years and the next two years of your master's, I believe. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I was in high school and I was considering uh, schools to go to, um, I, it was actually my flute teacher who had recommended that I consider um, going to Oberlin, or at least, you know, applying to Oberlin. Um, and my family not really knowing a lot about music and things like that, they didn't really know. And my mom was like, okay, like, if his teacher says it's a great place to go, like, I'll, I'll take him there. You know, let's see what it's all about. And I actually went to the summer programs there. So they have a, a week-long flute uh, masterclass that happens uh, every year. It's since changed. I think it might happen every other year now. Um, but the teacher at the time uh, was Michel Debost, who is a, a legendary uh, French flutist who taught at the Paris Conservatory for many years. He was principal flute in the Paris Orchestra under uh, Daniel Barenboim and had a huge solo career. He taught very uh, celebrated flute players, uh, both in, um, at his time at the conservatory and just in France, including Emmanuel Payud of the Berlin Philharmonic um, and uh, Leon Baisi, who uh, was in the Boston Symphony and uh, is now a professor at Rice University, um, Claire Chase, uh, new music, flutist, uh, virtuoso. Um, so he really, um, was an incredible teacher. And so for me, I hadn't really left Ohio 
much, you know, um, growing up in Dayton. And um, while the New York schools did really appeal to me and people often asked if I was going to audition, I just felt such this draw um, to Oberlin because of the teacher um, and because um, it was going to be a place where, you know, unlike a lot of the other conservatories that are um, alone, they're not tied to um, a college. So, you know, if you were to go to Juilliard, Manhattan School, Manus, these schools in New York, well, Manus is now under the new school, um, but, you know, you don't have the same sort of access uh, to liberal arts classes. Um, and, you know, I think that was also important to, to my family uh, that I, I go to a place that was also not only gonna teach me to play very well, but um, to think uh, and to learn a lot about other things because, you know, just to be a well-rounded uh, person. Um, so I, I went to Oberlin, I didn't really have a set goal. I knew I wanted to play a flute. I, I knew that's pretty much it. I wanted to be a great flute player, but in what capacity, I, I didn't really know. Um, and so my time at Oberlin really exposed me to um, great contemporary music. Um, I, so I got interested. I played in the contemporary music ensemble at Oberlin. I played in the orchestras too, but I was really drawn to um, collaborating with composers and playing new interesting works. And that was just sort of exciting to be a part of um, the creation of something new, right? Um, so I got really interested in doing that. And then I went abroad to Paris and I was studying with uh, Sophie Cherrier, who's the professor at the Paris Conservatory. One of uh, two professors, there's Philippe Bernard and now and uh, Sophie Cherrier. And I was studying in her class and uh, she is a great, great interpreter of, of new music um, and was actually hired by Pierre Boulez uh, to play his, to join his ensemble uh, back in like the late seventies. Um, so, you know, I was in Paris and I was hearing all of this great contemporary music and I felt like my world just really opened up that I didn't have to, I was seeing uh, great flute players have careers as teachers, um, as uh, soloists and as uh, performers of new music. And so that really, really appealed to me um, and opened up my world. And that's why my teachers sort of recommended that I go to New York for graduate school because um, that's really like the place if you have all of these interesting ideas um, and want to get involved in all these different things, like that's kind of where you go. Right, so that brought me uh, to Manhattan School. And you know, Manhattan School is the same thing. I think, you know, there's the orchestral performance program. Uh, there is just the classical uh, program. There's jazz program. There's like all these different programs. So there are people doing lots of different things. So you don't really get the sense that um, you have to do one thing. Right. There are great schools, you know, uh, Rice has certainly become a school that's um, taught a lot of great orchestral players and it's sort of like that is their focus. Um, but, you know, going to New York, going to Manhattan School, I saw lots of people doing different things. And so my world really did open up. Um, now, when I got out of school, it was a completely different story. What I ended up doing, you know, was a, a, a long winding road. Um, ultimately leading to where I am now. 
Um, but I think being around, uh, going to schools where people were doing interesting things and the teachers were encouraging of that made me feel like there were many different possibilities for me. And I think that's the best thing uh, for any student. I think it's, you do have to have a certain amount of drive and, you know, there, you have to work hard and say like, I want to be great and I want to do this at the highest level. And if you want to go for it, you really got to focus and you have to do it. But like, once that's all said and done, I think there has to be a certain flexibility and openness to exploring um, different things because you really never know uh, where life is going to lead you. Um, so I, I feel very fortunate that I went to programs and into schools that uh, gave me that mindset. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's so amazing, you know, meeting and listening to different stories of how, you know, people came from where they were and where they are now. And it's so inspiring. Something that for me, I've been following you for a pretty long time, actually, but <laughs> it's really funny because people who know me uh, really well now, when they see things that, that's happening within the classical music world, especially when it comes to flute players, they'll send it to me. You know, I even had um, a friend who like mailed me the clip. I think it was, I don't know if it was your New York Times or your Washington Post. It was when your album came out, actually. And they were like, do you know this person? Like, this seems like, you know, they seem like they're really onto something here. And so I wanted to ask you, you have an album out, like that's insane. And so can you just tell us about the process and like kind of where you are with that and how you went about doing it? How, how long was the, the journey for that process? The journey was long, <laughs> it was long. Um, so I, I had this idea in, I wanna say like 2016, um, that I, I was gonna record something. And it wasn't just my idea to be quite honest. It, I had friends, you know, people I was surrounded by saying, you know, you really should try to record something. And I have a really great friend who works in the classical music recording um, industry. And he's like, you know, I really think that that could be something that you should do um, because, it's a way for people to kind of understand who you are, know you're playing and how you think about music. Um, and I was like, okay, I think I was fearful for a long time because I was just like not really sure like what I wanted to say. And I didn't just wanna have an album for the sake of having one. I wanted to be a program that I really like thought about and that it sort of made sense, it spoke to me because I kind of felt like it had to speak to me if it was gonna to speak to anybody else, quite honestly. Um, so I began the process in, in 2016. And at that time, I was loaned this platinum flute that's very famous that was played by William Kincaid in the Philadelphia Orchestra and um, had this really crazy history where it was made for the World's Fair in New York back in the 30s. And um, it wasn't really even meant to be played. It was kind of just for show in this exhibition. And then William Kincaid like shows up at PAL looking for a new flute and they're getting ready to take this flute to the World's Fair to show. And um, he tries it. He's like, I want to buy this. 
and they're like, it's not really for sale right now, but if you can wait like until after the World's Fair, uh, we'll we'll let you buy it. So it goes to the World's Fair, it's shown there, and then he buys it and he plays it in the orchestra forever and ever and so many great recordings. Um, with the Philadelphia Orchestra, with uh, Eugene uh, Ormandy conducting, um, you know, he's using this, this this great flute. But then it had this, when he passed away, then it kind of like took a whole nother journey. Like he gave it to his great uh, student, Elaine Schaefer, who was an amazing uh, flutist, um, played in the Houston Symphony. And she played it for many years. And then her, when she died, her husband auctioned them off, like her whole collection of flutes um, at Christie's in New York. And so like there's this auction and this guy who's an instrument collector shows up with his friend Andy Warhol um, to check out like what's up, what's up for sale, right? Um, and this guy was determined to buy this flute. And so like the bidding starts and like, he won't stop like he the that price just keeps going up up and up and the flute ended up selling for like almost two hundred thousand dollars back in the 80s which i think in today's uh money would be something about like over four hundred thousand dollars like just like crazy um so he had it in his collection he did i don't really think he played like that. I think he liked to have them and like people he knew, like great flute players would come and play them. But, you know, it was kind of like for his collection. But he did generously uh, loan it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art for a, a, a period of time and it was shown in their musical instrument collection. Um, but then it went, he took it back and didn't want it anymore. He auctioned it off. Um, and then it, now it's in the hands of a private owner who, in fact, lent loaned it to me uh, for a period of time. And I really loved playing it. And so then I had this, so I had this flute and I was like, I should figure out a way to like showcase this instrument. And I'm getting ready to do this uh, album. And so I did. So uh, the Caleviajo solo three uh, um, on a company solo for flute, I used that flute because um, I thought, because it's unaccompanied and the flute is completely exposed, it really gave, it really gives people the opportunity to hear everything that it can do um, sound wise. Um, so, and so I put this program together with that in mind, but then I wanted a broad program because as we talked about early on how we uh, so often musicians are sort of pigeonholed. It's like, oh, there's this musician and she plays this or is this musician and he plays that. So I, I wanted this program to really represent the broad repertoire that I play. You know, um, when I was at Oberlin, I also studied uh, historical flutes. Like, so I have like broke flutes. Um, I have one, um, I have, uh, you know, a military, uh, a fife, you know, I have all sorts of instruments. So I have this broad interest in, in flutes and music. Um, so I wanted to play Bach and I wanted to approach it from more of a historical um, performance perspective. I wasn't trying to be completely a purist because clearly I played it on modern flute, um, but I did want to uh, dive into it on my Baroque flute and figure out how I could like sort of apply those um, 
sound qualities and the articulations that I would use on that instrument. Um, if, I, if I just spent a lot of time on that, then when I went back to the, the modern flute, what would that sound like? Um, so I did that. And then I, what else is on there? Oh, there's, there's Boulez. And so there's this like the Pierre Boulez and there's the Prokofiev and people kind of like very often think that the music is like, these things are so different. And while, yeah, like uh, a sonata in D major and a work by Pierre Boulez, which is, um, you know, atonal may seem on the surface as being um, completely like not related, but they are like, there's structure, there's form, there are themes that come back um, over and over again. And so I saw these connections. And so it was really about this historical approach, telling a story and bridging the gap over the centuries and trying to show that though this music is like 300 years apart, you know, from one another, uh, they're kind of the same in a way, you know, it's just kind of a different language, but it's all kind of the same thing. Um, so yeah, I did that. But then the pro, I recorded it in 2017 and in 2018. And in 2018, I, I joined Imani Wins. And I was also doing lots of other things before I joined the group and I was busy and I was playing with orchestras and things. And so this recording actually sat for pretty much two years, more than two years. If I recorded in 2017, uh, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, it sat about for two years before I got back around to um, uh, finishing it, you know, the mixing, mastering, all that stuff, trying to figure out how I was going to put it out. Um, so when the pandemic hit and I, I stopped touring, um, there seemed to be this real push for musicians to create content and uh, to put things out. Um, but to be quite honest, I didn't have any uh, interest in doing that. I was kind of, I think the world stopped and there were terrible things happening. You know, people were, uh, are and still are dying, like getting sick. I, I know so many family members and close friends who have gotten sick. So it just really felt like, I didn't really think that knowing that there was all this going around, it did not inspire me in one it didn't inspire me one bit to create anything to put out. For me, it was a time to like sit, like reflect, maybe work on some things that I wanted to do for myself. But this real, I got to like put out these videos and I have to do like, I just didn't. That's not what I was feeling at all. But I had this recording that was just sitting there. So I said, okay. I don't really want to like do this other stuff that's happening right now, but there is this recording sitting there. So let's like put it out and, and just see uh, what happens. Um, and I did. And so now it, it lives in the world and it feels very good to have it out. Um, it feels like a weight has been lifted because even though like it had been completed, like it wasn't out there. And I think it was always sort of hanging over my head that, you know, it's, it's over there. Like it's just sitting, waiting. And um, so I'm really happy to have that out. And I have just added it to my Apple music playlist <laughs> and it will be on my car as I am going. Cause I am, I love listening. I, these two can know uh, and what you were talking about earlier with your Oberlin and Manhattan experience. I used to be like, so against new music 
And now my master's recital is only music written in the past 20 to 25 years. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, we need to push this forward. So we are playing new music by living composers. Now we can collaborate with them. And on that, I want to transition to Amani Wins because I also love chamber music. I just want to see, I wanted to ask you if you can explain your journey to Amani Wins, the process of joining the group and how it's been since you joined. Yeah, great question. Um, so I knew of the group for so many years. I mean, you can't be a wind player and not know Imani wins. Like you just, you can't, there's so, um, you know, there's so few, uh, celebrated wind quintets in the world. And so it's just like, if you are a wind player, you know who they are, you know, of them because of, uh, how they sort of transform classical music, particularly chamber music, uh, uh, the commissioning, the high level of playing, uh, you know, the education initiatives, and just everything that they stand for. Um, and they came to visit Oberlin while I was a student, and I got to hear them on the artist recital series, which was just like incredible. Uh, it was really, really uh, life changing to hear them. Uh, my journey to the group, I always wanted to play solo um, recitals and chamber music. I just, I think it's a bit of uh, the only child inside of me, but I don't really mind like playing by myself. It's like quite all right. Like I remember being a kid and my mom always asked me, did I miss like not having a, a brother or a sister or like, did I need to go play with my cousins or something? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm okay. Like I'm good by myself. <laughs> so I, I, that's just how I am. And so I think there was always this, I didn't mind uh, playing by myself. So there was always this draw to want to give recitals and play chamber music. Um, but as a wind player, there aren't a ton of opportunities to do that at a high level um, and to make a living doing it, to be quite honest. Um, and so when I got out of school, and even though I had these ideas, I wanted to play recitals, I wanted to play concertos, I wanted to do chair music. You know, I won the concerto competition when I was in Manhattan school. I was like fired up for the world. I was like, I'm ready to go. But then I got out of school and I was like, okay, now what? <laughs> it, it was like, okay, now what? Like, what am I going to do? Like, I have all these ideas and I don't really know um, what to make of any of it. Uh, but at the same time, I had to live. Like, I still had to live and had to take care of myself. I had to support myself. Um, so... I started taking like orchestra auditions like and this wasn't something that I was really doing in college as some of my um, uh, classmates were who were really like orchestral track musicians like I, I was not doing that at the time I was doing solo competitions and things. Um, so here I was three years out of uh, graduate school. Um, and like, okay, I'm gonna start taking some more orchestra auditions. And, uh, you know, people talk about this all the time. It's like, you can prepare as best as you can. And then you just kind of have to let the chips fall as they may, right? And it's like a little bit of luck has to be on your side and you hopefully will have a good day. I mean, 99% of your days will be bad days, but you might just have that 1% where someone will hear you and like what you do. And you might just have that one good day. So I started taking orchestra auditions and because I had never really um, been 
sort of in that orchestral mindset. Like I want to be like a principal flute player or I want to be like a piccolo player. Like I don't really care. Like I, I just like would take like all the different ones. I took second flute, I took principal flute and I kind of got good at like the, the piccolo. Oddly enough, like I really like playing the piccolo, <laughs> um, which I know a lot of flute players are kind of like, oh, it's so high and I just, I can't stand it. Um, but I actually really liked it. Again, I think it's that whole only child thing. It's like, I'm the like highest voice in the orchestra, go, you know? Um, so I was taking auditions and that led to um, a lot of guest work with different orchestras um, and, I would frequently be called to to play like the piccolo and uh, the fill in and flute sections. in uh, In 2018, I was actually uh, filling in at the Los Angeles Philharmonic uh, um, for the summer series at the Hollywood Bowl, and um, I got an email. Uh, asking would I be interested in auditioning for Imani Wins and. It was like weird because I was like, like, what's going on? Like, I just always knew like this group as like these five people. And so I was like, is Valerie like leaving? Like, did something happen? Like, you know, I, I, did, I had no information other than like, are you interested in auditioning? Um, and I remember I was eating lunch at a Thai restaurant in, in Los Angeles and, I, and getting the email and just thinking like, I mean, yeah, I'm interested, but... I'm kind of confused. Um, so I replied and said I, I, I would I would do it. And I got a repertoire list like that it was just like something that I had not ever seen before. Like it was all of this crazy music that was very, very hard. Like when I was taking orchestra auditions, like I knew, like I had to play my Brahms floor. I had to play Daphnis and Chloe, Afternoon Fun, Mendelssohn Scherzo, like all these different things. So, I mean, I was, I saw this repertoire list and it was like, you want me to play like Villobos like quintet? Like you want me to play Ride of Spring arranged for like wind quintet? Like Scheherazade arranged for wind quintet? Like Paquito de Rivera? Like I'll, I, Okay, like, and I was really overwhelmed because, you know, orchestras, you especially, you know, at the, um, the Los Angeles Philharmonic at this level, you know, you get one rehearsal at 9.30 a.m. with the conductor and the soloist and you rehearse until about noon. You go home, you eat, you practice, you take a nap, you put on your tux and you're back at the Hollywood Bowl for a 7 uh, p.m. downbeat. And, you know, every night I'm doing a different con a different program with a different conductor. Um, lots of programs, you know, with Gustavo Dudamel, which is like super nerve wracking. Everyone wants to be on their A game and, you know, and he's so exciting. But I just like, I, I didn't really know. I was like, I don't know if I have time to really practice all this music, but... I felt that if I didn't uh, give it a go, that I would regret it. So I just practiced as hard as I could. I listened to lots of recordings. Um, I mean, and the group has had such a presence online for so long. So like a lot of their recordings, live performances were online. So I got to hear these things and hear how they played them. Um, and I just did the best that I could pre preparing. And I flew uh, back to New York and I, played with them for maybe like two hours. Like it was like an audition, like nothing I had ever done before. Like literally, like I just played through this entire list of music with them for two hours. I had never rehearsed this stuff with anyone. I had never performed a note of it in my life. 
Um, and I just um, played the whole list down. And there are a whole list of uh, candidates that, that did the audition, some whom I know, many I don't. Um, but for me, like, it was strange because this, I had now been out of school for eight years and my, my career really had seemed to be moving towards doing more orchestral work. Like I was literally sustaining myself, like hopping on planes and playing with different orchestras, you know? Um, it, it, in my mind, I was sort of thinking like, maybe that's where I'm being led because I always had this openness, this flexibility. I was never sort of like, um, glued to like one idea fixed on you know one uh path and so I did that and then I went back to LA pretty much the next day because I had to play the um the opening gala at Walt Disney Concert Hall um and uh a week later like they called and asked me if I if I wanted to start like they had made their decision and I was like okay. I was like, well, sure. So uh, I finished up what I was doing out there. And in October, 2018, I just hit the ground running and started touring pretty much full time from then until uh, last March when the, the pandemic struck. Wow. That, that story is like, OMG. You're, it's just kind of we never realized things really just kind of fall out the air and then here we go, we're in something new. So, wow. Um, one of my favorite things that I heard uh, you and Monty Wins do was with uh, University of Michigan Chamber Choir, you did the three spirituals. Um, and I, I, because I'm a choir and uh, band education when I was in college. So I heard that and I was like, I want to do it. I want to sing it. I want to, especially... Uh, the second movement, uh, there's a bomb in Gilead. I was like, this is beautiful. Like, how was that experience? I mean, you go from playing just chamber and now you're with the whole choir. How was that experience for y'all? And this is probably one of your first, like in your first year of you with them, right? Yes, um, this was uh, in March 2019. Uh, that we did that. And we were in, we had a residency at the University of Michigan. Uh, we were there for about a week and uh, we did uh, individual master classes. Uh, we taught, uh, coached chamber music. Um, we did workshops. Uh, but one of the highlights was this performance with the choir and the choir is just like mind blowing, like I, 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 there just aren't words um, to describe that level of musicianship. And uh, on this program was uh, our horn player, Jeff Scott's arrangements of spirituals um, for wind quintet and, and choir. And I, I was just, it was so powerful for me. Um, I mean, it was nerve wracking because, I mean, as you said, it was like my first season and I'm just trying to figure out like how to play with like these five people, <laughs> you know, really. And now we were doing this thing with choir uh, and the group had played these works before. Um, but again, as 
my first two years were like, I just had never encountered the, this music before. So I was always sort of like fasten your seatbelt and like, let's see what happens. Um, but that concert stands out to me as one of the most powerful experiences um, ever. I think Jeff Scott is not only an incredible horn player, but a really, really brilliant composer and incredible arranger. Um, and just the way he used the instruments and uh, that this five piece wind ensemble could really support this full chorus, which just really extraordinary. Like, so it's like, not only does this man know how to like write for quintet, but he's like, I know how, like, I'm gonna put the voices together yeah. too. You know, so it's just like incredible. And um, yes, those recordings are on YouTube for, for everyone to hear. Um, but I, for anyone out there who's interested in, in works for uh, quintet and, and chorus, um, yeah, definitely consider them. They're really, really uh, stunning, stunning pieces. And um, yeah, I, during this time when, you know, the world kind of stopped and all I could really do is look back on these wonderful memories of the recent years that I've had. Um, I found myself going back to those recordings of those spirituals. Um, uh, you know, spirituals are incredibly, uh, they nourish the soul, they're, they bring people such great comfort. Um, but for me, there's that extra added layer of that was just like a really um, special performance and that that would kind of live with me forever. Um, so yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience to work with that choir. And I hope that we can go back and do, do something else another time because it was just really incredible. I hope so too, because just listening to it, I remember sending it to all my friends and we're just like, we want to do this. It sounds so good. And it was like you all and the choir and, uh, um, Dr. Rogers, all of you were like as a group and I love Dr. Rogers so much. And so just hearing all of that beautiful music, just, it was so pleasing to my ears. And thank you for doing that. Um, and I think the last question that I have is, what is some advice that you would give to students who are you know, in high school or in college that is thinking about doing this classical journey, um, especially uh, students uh, of people of color, black students, who are thinking about doing this, what is some advice that you would give? Uh, I mean, we could talk about that. We could have a whole nother like episode to talk about that, right? <laughs> like it's so maybe, much. Maybe we will later on. <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could totally take a whole nother hour to unpack that. But advice that I would give um, to really... Uh, if you have a vision, if you have a dream, as, as cheesy as it may sound, like, hold on to it. Like, just use that, that vision that you have of seeing yourself doing, performing uh, your ideal concert, you know, in your ideal city with that audience. Hold on to that. Um, because 
the journey to becoming a professional is a really long, winding, bumpy road. Um, and sometimes that's all you're left with is that that vision that you have. Like when you're out in the world and you're taking auditions and you're knocking on doors and the doors aren't opening or people are saying no, um, really the only thing that will keep you going sometimes is uh, the dream that you have. And while it's really important uh, to have good teachers and mentors and surround yourself with people who will lift you up and push you forward. Um, it's equally important that you find uh, the strength to look inside of yourself and keep coming back to this dream that you have because only you really know that. You can try to describe it to people. You can try to tell them what it is that you want and what you see, but no one's inside of your head. It's, it's only you. Um, so you kind of have to hold on to that. Um, uh, I would say practice. Like, I know it sounds like really basic, but practice as hard as you can. Um, it's a never ending journey. You know, and I think that's it's a challenge, but that's the beauty of being a musician that we always uh, can discover new things that we can always uh, work at attaining a higher level of playing of understanding music of communicating music and that just takes a lot of time so practice, you know, when I was in high school. Uh, I practiced on my lunch breaks, I practiced after school, I practiced before school. When I got to college, I practiced really hard. Um, understand your instrument, like practice, your teachers say practice scales, practice your scales, like do your etudes. Like um, it's important to have ideas and to dream, but you know, something that I keep telling uh, students in master classes and uh, things like that is if you want to be a good writer, right? Say you want to like publish novels, right? Or you want to be a, a journalist for like the New York Times or something like that, right? You got to know how to write. Like you have to have a vocabulary, right? Like you can say that you want to do all these things, but if you have a very limited vocabulary and an understanding, uh, a limited understanding of history, writing skills, all these things, it's gonna be quite limiting. You're gonna feel kind of limited in terms of what you can do. So I like to tell musicians like, listen to lots of pieces, lots of different kinds of music, uh, study your scores um, and really dive deep into uh, your, you know, your technical studies, your etudes, um, your orchestral studies, like all those things because these are things that you're gonna like pull out of your pocket later on in life. These are tools, these are tricks, right? That like, oh, you want that? Got it, ready to go, right? So take that take that very seriously. It's, it's just as important as the, the dream, as, as the vision, you know, like to really just like take time and to build your skills. And I think at, during this time, with the pandemic and everything shut down, you'll never have time like this again. You'll never have time like this to really practice and to be with your, your craft. So 
take this time. If there's something that you feel is a weakness that you want to like get better at in your playing, practice it. If there's some new repertoire that you want to learn, learn it. If there's some composers that you want to learn more about um, and work with, collaborate with, write them. You know, you, you'll never have this time again. So um, wherever uh, there is a challenge, I think that there's always an, an opportunity to. I um, just so many, so much, everything you just said, I uh, just, it's amazing and just so much wisdom, obviously. And I just want to thank you from all of us for, you know, sharing this time with us and with our audience to just kind of talk about your experience. And you're such an inspiration, like, and to spe like, especially to me being a flute player, a black flute player, specifically seeing you succeed. Um, it, it's amazing. It's, you know, I'm always cheering for us and want to see more of us out there. And so thank you for everything that you you do and everything that you will do later on. Um, so we have a game that we want to play before we let you go. Okay. So it's called Lightning Round Favorites. And so the idea is that, and you know, um, we'll say, we'll give you like a, some favorite things like, oh, tell us who your favorite yada yada is. And then you try to say it as quickly as possible. And it's just kind of like a go, go, go situation. Some of them are harder than others. Um, they may make you think for a little bit. It's okay. It's just for us to get to hear some of your, um, your favorite things. So let's start. So favorite composer. Brahms. Favorite conductor you've worked with so far. Gustavo Dudamel. Of course, duh. <laughs> Favorite type of ensemble to perform in? Uh, flute and harp. Does that count? Ooh, yeah, that absolutely. Count? Absolutely. Um, favorite pop artist? Oh, wow. Uh, uh, can, I, can I say Amy Winehouse? You absolutely can. <laughs> Absolutely, you can. Great. <laughs> um, your what's your go-to coffee or tea or drink in general order? Ooh, oat milk lattes. Starbucks has amazing oat milk drinks right now. They may not be available everywhere, but there's a brown sugar honey oat Ooh. milk latte. It's fabulous. Nice. Really um, favorite show to binge currently or just in general? Ooh. Favorite show to, to binge. Ooh, uh, how to get away with murder? Oh my gosh! <laughs> you're either gonna react that way. Ella Davis, like, yes, all day. <laughs> I was like, he's either gonna say scandal or how to get away with murder. I can like feel it. <laughs> I would say scandal, but that's like a little bit like out of my mind now because it ended a couple years ago. So I'm like, recently? Right. How to no, for sure. For <laughs> sure. Um, favorite piece to perform solo? Ooh, favorite piece to perform solo. That's a good question. Um, I'm like looking around, seeing like if there's anything around me like helps inspire me. Like, is there anything? Uh, just a piece in general that like you just know when you play it, you'll just be able to open up freely and just perform and speak directly from like the soul, your heart. Yeah, it's gonna sound crazy, but Barrio Sequenza. Mm, mm. 
Yeah. Sound crazy. Sound interesting. <laughs> my, my curiosity is peaked. Um, favorite piece to perform within an ensemble? Uh, big ensemble, chamber yeah, like, ensemble. Like you can uh, you can do both or either either way. Uh, I'd say uh, favorite piece, big ensemble, Brahms. Two Brahms Second Symphony. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so it, it, it does. It's just it's just that, right? It's just, <laughs> I can feel that. <laughs> um, favorite performance experience to this day. Uh, uh I would have to say um there was a kind of like a, a big like uh it wasn't the fourth of July but it was a like Hollywood Bowl concert with Dudamel and we in like he, we did like uh I was a whole Tchaikovsky program and he at one point there was like we did 1812 overture yes. and he had like this uh like remote control where he could control the fireworks over the hollywood ball and like when the cannons would shoot he just like would do this and like it would just like be this big explosion and he just looked like a kid like in a candy store and it was so exciting and it was so much sound so much fun and the energy was incredible and there was like thousands of people on the ball and I, it just really sticks with me i cannot even imagine like Everything about that Dudamel fireworks, just, I just, I can't, I can't even. Um, okay, the last question in, in the um, theme of the month, and of course, just our culture in general, who is an African-American figure who has inspired you? Uh, so many, but if I could just say uh, one person would be Damari McGill. Oh, yeah, he, yes. you know, he came to my hometown when I was in high school and, you know, junior high school and, you know, just seeing him be great and play so beautifully, um, just seeing him always made me know that, you know, maybe, maybe I can do it too. <laughs> and he still inspires me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Damari is- Because he's still great and doing amazing, great things. Amazing. Amazing. Professor McGill is an amazing performer and such an inspiration, I think, to musicians everywhere, especially flutists, especially me as a Black flute player. Like, it was always, he was always someone who I looked up to, him and his brother, both. Mm -hmm. um, so th thank you again so much. This has been amazing. I am just so happy that you were able to join us and we would love to have you back, honestly, because I feel like we could have so many more conversations about things. But um, thank you guys for watching. Make sure to check out our other Black History Month episodes that we have posted. Our socials are down below. Make sure to like, give us a comment, subscribe, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for being a part of our conversation. You can learn more and reach out to us at relativepitchpodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to our listening platforms and follow us on our social media. See you next time.